Back to Matthew we turn to pick up at verse 15 of chapter 12. This is at page 817 in your pew Bible, if that is uh, helpful for you. Matthew 12, picking up at verse 15. As we turn to one of the climactic texts of Matthew's gospel, we are also uh, landing on one of the richest themes in the prophecy of Isaiah. Because by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew is going to quote the ancient prophet in application to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You may remember, especially during this season of Lent, that in Isaiah's prophecy, God reveals the Messiah as the servant in a series of what uh, are commonly called uh, servant songs. Often we refer specifically to the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. Well, Matthew takes the opportunity afforded now by the building tension between the Pharisees and Jesus and the deepening uh, contrast between the rabbi from Nazareth and the leaders of the church of Jesus' day to show us how Jesus fulfills prophecy. Prophecy already ancient, 700 years old by the time the Messiah appeared in the flesh bearing the name Jesus, and fulfills it wonderfully as our Savior, humble and gentle, yet powerful and effectual. He is worthy of your adoration. He is worthy of your praise and of your wholehearted faith and trust and devotion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And now we thrill that uh, to find prophet and apostle together bearing witness in concert to the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a privilege for us to read these words today, Father. 2,700 years old and then repeated another 2,000 years ago and, and continuing to re be repeated through these centuries, these millennia, to your people and proclaim to the world, to the Gentiles, even us. Open our hearts now to receive marvelous things from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May I remind you, by the way, for the sake of context, that Jesus has just called all those who are weary and heavy laden to himself, that they, that we might find rest. Rest and a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. How utterly opposite from the heavy burdens that the religious leaders had been laying on the shoulders of the people. Instead of helping to remove the burdens from their backs, they were, as a matter of fact, making them heavier. Then, supplying a perfect example of this, Matthew, just last week we saw, presents Jesus and his disciples, rightly celebrating and enjoying the Sabbath to the vexation of the Pharisees, whose list of Sabbath rules was being transgressed left and right by his disciples, by Jesus' disciples, but especially by Jesus when he healed the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath. As a result, we read last time, the Pharisees went out 
and conspired against him how to destroy him. That's where we left off last time. Now verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. Let's pause a second because I'm not going to make a lot of those uh, of that verse of those verses uh, this morning, but I do want to remind us all that Jesus did not withdraw from there because he was afraid or that he was, uh, you know, somehow uh, cringing and fleeing them. Rather, uh, Jesus departed from there for the same reason that he ordered them, ordered the people he healed, not to make him known. Jesus was operating on his timetable. Just as the shepherd, the good shepherd came to lay down his life, nobody took it from him, he says, I lay it down of my own accord. So Jesus is timing these events according to his timetable. That's why he departs from there. That's why he says, don't be talking about these things to other people. Now, of course, they didn't heed his counsel, his direction very well, did they? But that's the explanation for that. But Matthew says there's a grander uh, reason that he did these things, verse 17, to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now, if there's anything clear to you in this world and in this life, and as was wonderfully pointed out by uh, Mr. Shields in his prayer this morning, it is that things are not as they should be. Nations are at war. Human beings are oppressed and enslaved. The poor are deprived justice while money talks. Evil is called good and good evil. Civil leaders all over the globe are blustering and posturing against one another even as they shake their fists at heaven and persecute the people of God on earth. Political correctness and now the so-called cancel culture paralyzes plain speech and threatens to stifle righteous action. Meanwhile, our own lives look more like broken battlefields than peaceful pastures. Conflicts within and without, with sin, with others, even with other Christians, between friends and family, all of these serve to remind us that we are broken. And we live in a broken world. God has the solution to the problem both in its macro and in its micro manifestations, from conflicts between nations to conflicts within my own heart. 
The solution is actually a, a person about whom Isaiah wrote some 700 years before his physical appearance on earth as a human being. No wonder God should begin this revelation with the word, Behold! This is something to grab our attention. Behold! My servant. Now, you already know this person. Of course, it is God the Son who, wonder of wonders, laid aside His heavenly glories and His prerogatives to take this very role of a servant. You know him, I say, most of you, I dare say, in the hearing of my voice right now, know him because you are his followers. And he lives in you. But we still do well to heed the voice of God again this morning and obey it and behold again. Behold my servant. As we do behold him and look upon him, there are three things in particular that I wish to point out for you to note carefully this morning. Note his person, note his power, and his purpose. First, note well the person of this servant of God. Who is he? Well, his identity is revealed by his father. Behold my servant. And what makes him so important is he shares a particular and a peculiar relationship with God. You know, King David may be called God's servant. Isaiah may be called his servant. Eliakim and Israel together are called his servants. You and I are his servants. But this is my servant. There's a special relationship between God and, and this servant that sets him apart. That relationship is marked by delight, says God here in verse 18, with whom my soul is well pleased. You've heard those words before, haven't you? Where was that? Ah, yes, back earlier in Matthew's gospel, right? Your mind goes to the baptism of Jesus and the voice that was heard on that occasion from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here's a very powerful reason why you should believe in him. This may not be the most striking biblical prophecy of Jesus. There are many more that we've seen over the years together. But the mere fact that his coming was prophesied by Isaiah 700 years before his coming and with remarkable details should certainly cause you, if you do not believe in him today, to consider your unbelief. Who else has been the subject of detailed prophecies for hundreds, even thousands of years and then fulfilled those prophecies one after another after another in amazing detail? It's just one of the Bible's ways of saying you need to believe in this one. You must believe in him. You must have this servant for your Savior and for your Lord. This is who he is, this person. Behold my servant. Second, note well the power of this servant of God. Now by what power does he operate? Verse 18 again. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. 
the power, the, the animating force by which, or rather we should say by whom, this capital S servant carried out his work was the Spirit of God. They could not have anticipated in Isaiah's day, I think, the number of ways that the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit would be operating in the life of God's servant, Jesus. Matthew has been unfolding it here in his gospel, hasn't he? And we've been watching with delight. From his very birth, he would be the one conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would miraculously cause the embryo to appear in the virgin's womb. And more than that, begin in that little one, even in the womb, to develop all the gifts and all the graces that would be necessary for him to accomplish his mission on the earth. The same Holy Spirit would continue during Jesus' growth into manhood to superintend his development at every point, filling him with wisdom. And not just wisdom, but the fruit of the Spirit, love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and so on. At his baptism, you may remember, special attention is drawn to the relationship between the servant and the Holy Spirit who descends on him like a dove. Immediately after these things, it's the same Holy Spirit who actually initiates strikingly initiates the whole episode of temptation, the spirit who leads him out to the point where Satan would throw his very worst at the servant Jesus. And the same Holy Spirit who helped him in his ministry of preaching and of healing and, and of praying. When the Apostle Peter looks back on the ministry of his master, it was the anointing of the Holy Spirit that served as a crucial testimony to the identity of Christ. Remember Peter proclaims in Acts 10 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. How crucial and constant was the, was the ministry of the Holy Spirit to Jesus and how essential to his work of salvation even in his death and resurrection and ascension. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that it was through the eternal spirit that Christ offered himself without blemish to God. Peter, in his first epistle, adds that having, put to, having been put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit, and even ascending to heaven, he received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. Peter, in his first epistle, adds that having been put to death, I'm sorry, and, and, and that was Acts 2.33, actually, the promise of the Holy Spirit received by him. Now, were the text before us this morning not about the second person of the Godhead, of the Son, we could spend the rest of this morning actually unfolding the work of the Holy Spirit. But here's the point, the power by which Jesus lived, the servant of God, and died, and even rose again, and ascended into heaven, was the Holy Spirit. It had to be. No man unaided by the Spirit of God could have done the things, could have lived the life, could have endured the punishments that he did. 
For you remember that Jesus was in every way just as you are, save for sin. Now that means something that I found absolutely amazing since I first came upon it years ago. And that is this, that the whole time that Jesus was there hanging on the cross and suffering there the, the shame and particularly undergoing all the horrors of the wrath of God, it was God supporting Christ on the cross that helped the servant, Christ, to endure that wrath. Now, let me put it more, more simply. While God was punishing Christ for your sin on the cross as the wrath of God was beating on him, it was also the hand of God that sustained him so that he could suffer all of that wrath and all of that punishment in your place. I don't point that out to you merely because it's a, it's a mind-boggler. I point it out because it's another reason for you to love the Lord. For you to love the Lord and be moved to the deepest possible gratitude for the amazing nature of your so great salvation. And it's more than enough motivation for me and you to take another look to behold God's servant again. But the other reason I point this out to you is so that you will be struck by the wonderful way that Jesus, the servant, exercised his power. Any other king with this kind of power would use this power how? Anyone who knew that he could call tens of thousands of legions of angels at any time he liked would have used this power how? Abusively. This sort of power would have corrupted any other human being. You remember the line from Lord Acton, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But not Jesus. In other cases through history, servants have become kings, but in this case, the king, the king of kings it's just backwards. The king of kings becomes a servant. Look how he exercises his power, not by going around, you know, bashing heads and yelling his head off. Remember Jesus' ministry? We're becoming more acquainted with it now in Matthew, aren't we? He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. That's how Jesus handled his ministry, isn't it? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick. Think of the wick after you blow it out, and it's just barely glowing, just a little bit of tiny bit of flame there. We, we have fun in our house around Christmas time, licking our fingers, putting that thing out. Jesus doesn't even do that. A smoldering wick he will not quench. He's not talking about candles. He's talking about people. All the power in heaven and on earth and beyond are at Jesus' disposal at the 
at the snap of the fingers, yet finding bruised reeds. Where do you find those bruised reeds? I'm looking at them. Finding bruised reeds like you and me, he comes to us with gentleness. With care not to break us. We're already bruised and bent. Though we try his patience every day, he does not come unglued and start yelling at us and pointing his finger in our face. Though he has every right and we supply him every minute of every day with more than enough to vex him, so to speak, it is power exercised with infinite patience and gentleness toward you. Reminds me a little bit of the so-called Da Vinci surgical robot used for tiny little operations in the human body. Maybe you've seen the videos when they use what amounts to little tiny robot fingers to fold a ridiculously small origami bird, smaller than a dime. A hugely powerful machine is used by surgeons looking through a microscope to do the gentlest and tenderest of procedures. As great as his power truly is, Jesus exercises it in a, such a gentle way with you that you bruised reeds are not broken. The one who calmed the storms, the seas, and the winds by the command of his voice turns to you and he says to you, he says, come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Which brings me to the last point. Note well the purpose of this servant of God. It is in some to bring justice. There it is in verse 21. Until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now you and I reread that word justice, and immediately our minds go where? To the courtroom, right? to the courtroom and the judge and, and jury and so on. We hear justice and the English word with its narrow application takes us to cases and verdicts, and that's not entirely wrong. That kind of justice is certainly part of this, what uh, the word Isaiah uses here is mishpat, uh, the Hebrew word, but it's certainly not limited just to that. The Hebrew word mishpat is to the English word justice, what the Hebrew word shalom is to the English word peace. Now, peaceful relationships, for example, is certainly a part of shalom. But shalom cannot be limited to just relationships any more than mishpat can be reduced only to legal matters. What the Bible means here is that 
everything that is wrong in the world will be made right. Everything that is upside down right now because of sin's perverting influence and invasion even into our lives, into our bodies, the suffering, the sadness, the grief being turned on its head, being undone and made right. The evil that we are witnessing that is legitimized, even applauded, the abuse of innocent animals and even less regard for human life. The senseless and the selfish stripping of the earth's beauty. The servant has come to deal with all of it and to make it all right. The hard bargaining, the ruthlessness of our national life. Widespread disregard for others if only number one is served. The perversions of sex. The enslavements of, of chemicals even to death. Young people found dead of overdoses, unjust wars that serve only the purposes and the purposes only of bloodthirsty dictators, leaders who seek power for power's sake alone. All of this, all of it you can name and think of, and more, the servant is setting to rights. Even now. And here's the exhilarating thing. While he is bringing all of this cosmic justice about, he is also bringing mishpat to your souls who are in Christ. Slowly, gently, but surely, while the servant king is fixing what is so terribly wrong in the world, he is also fixing what is so terribly wrong with you. I'm speaking to those, of course, who are trusting in Him for salvation. He's doing a transformative work. He is transforming your heart right now. He is. And you must trust Him to do it. Sometimes you even have to trust that He is doing it, don't you? You must resist an inner Pharisee who would resist having him do it too. Jesus came to his people, came as the covenant Messiah in his own, to his own in his own day. He came proclaiming the brokenness of man, our utter sinfulness, our total lack of strength on our own to bring mishpat, justice, rightness to our own souls, let alone the world around us. He came as a light for the nations. Isaiah puts it that way. He says to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. But first, as I say, he came to the Jews. And we've been witnessing their initial reaction, haven't we? Just even last week, the verse with which we finished last time, when the servant actually did show up on the scene, when Jesus came to address their need. They said to him effectively, what need? What need have we of you? I'm not blind. I'm in no dungeon. 
Now, I can understand why those other people have need, those really, really bad people, you know, the, the prostitutes and the drunks and the, and the gluttons, those kind of people. Now, I can understand why they might need help. But I go to church. I read the Ten Commandments. I help little old ladies across the street. I tithe mint, cumin, and dill. I'm okay. No thanks. Don't need you. And then we need persisted. Those religious people, those same religious people conspired against him how to destroy him until finally they arranged it. And under Pontius Pilate had him crucified. See, the purpose of this servant, of my servant, as the Father calls him, is not to come and... and and stroke your back and make you feel good about yourself. That's not why he has come. His purpose has been and is to come and to transform you by his grace. And that holds as true for you and me today, Christians, as the very day that the servant first paid his first visit to you and took possession of your heart in the first place. It's a continuing work. You can, and, and you are no longer no more able to do this, to pursue this mishpat, this justice, the making of all things right and pure and holy in your life and in your heart by your own power and strength. And you could have, have changed your own heart to begin with, given sight to your own blind eyes, or freed yourself from the dungeon of your sin to begin with. There's as much grace now as it was to begin with. You cannot start by the Spirit and continue by the flesh. That's not how it works. It has to be all of grace from beginning to end. Now, you must put sin to death. Yes, you must slay that sin. You must put that transgression of your disobedient heart to death. Mortify it. Put on the corresponding new piece, uh, piece of new obedience, whatever it is, by grace, by God's powerful working in you, you do this. This the servant does as you yield yourself to him and to his transformative power. That's the thing about taking his yoke. You know, you don't, you don't just take his yoke on and try it on for size. You know, maybe pray a prayer and then take it off again and figure out oh, everything's cool now, right, between you and, and him. No, you take a yoke to wear it. You take a yoke to continue to wear it. You come under this servant so that this servant becomes your master. That's how it works. But when you do this, and as long as you continue to do this, you find that it is true. It is so true. Even if only in tiny degrees at a time. Sometimes, sometimes nearly imperceptible, but real. He does start to make things right. He does bring justice in your heart and in the fullest sense to bear because of the person, because of the power, because this is the purpose of the servant of God.
dear flock, my fellow Gentiles, put your hope in him. Amen.